Oh, you'll see. Just a couple of verses here in Genesis chapter 3. There they are. They say this. The Lord God said to the serpent. So we're talking about Yahweh Elohim, in case you've mistaken the identity here. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity. Now some of your translations say hostility or animosity or maybe even hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And here's the money line right here. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is an inspired text. It's a little bit of a strange text for Easter. I mean, maybe you think so. Now, we heard, um, we heard the more traditional text Pete read to you, and we've been singing about those things. In fact, we heard it more expounded earlier, those of us out there by the late uh, sunrise service, and Paula shared about that. So what about this text? Well, just hang with me here. So, without a doubt, I mean, for Christians... Every single you know week, all everything they do, everything they sing, everything they teach, for Christian people, Jesus is the center. It's a Christ-centered religion. And on a resurrection day, well, it would just be downright weird to a blasphemous extent if, if it weren't Christ-centered. So what are you doing in Genesis anyway? On that note, Jesus did not begin in the Gospels. Now, I mean, technically speaking, if we're just going to be doctrinally correct, Jesus did not begin at all because, you know, co-eternal with the Father, no beginning. However, in terms of the Bible and the storyline, the timeline of the Bible, Jesus does not just enter that story and enter that timeline where he enters physically into history, where he enters the world, the beginning of the gospel accounts. He's, he's in there long, long, long before that. So in this text, when it says, when it refers to, quote, her offspring, and when it says, he shall crush your head to the serpent, well, to whom do you suppose that is referring? Wow. Genesis 3, that is so far back already, Genesis. Here, already, here he is already. The first, this is the first messianic reference. It's prophetic. It's, we're three chapters in to the first book of the Bible. Theologians call it the Proto-Evangelium, the Proto-Gospel. Sort of like the, the Gospel message, you know, that's supposed to be down the line some centuries. And here it is, third chapter in, and in a prophetic word, we, we already have it. I mean, this is this is the context, this is an obvious context, and everybody understands we're at the beginning of the Bible. The world's been created, we have the world before us. And of course, um, you know, it's magnificent. The world 
is a remarkable, magnificent place. And then you have the people, the man and the woman, the crowning achievement, different from all the other creatures because they have the image of God. And so far, so good. So far, it's really just great. But there's another force at work. There's another character here. There's another person involved. There's another presence in the midst here. And isn't that wild that at the very beginning, right from the start, God has an enemy. Opposition right at the start. And thus, human beings have an enemy. He hates, he hates God. He hates these people he made. And all of this, of course, leads us to, and this all, it, all, it all comes to this, to the fall, what we call the fall. And so now the world, it's still, it's still magnificent, and it's still an amazing uh, creation. But now it's a dangerous place to be. And people still have the image of God. But now it's sort of marred, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's got a stain on it. Now they're kind of alienated, you know? They're alienated from God, they're alienated from each other. They're given to every possible kind of sin, every kind of wrong inclination, and they're, and they're at each other's throats. And, you know, here comes just a long, ugly history of us from that point on. And furthermore now, even though the world is still a magnificent place, and even though they still have the image of God, and they're still fearfully and wonderfully made and all that, but now the fall has made it such that they got, they've got this new part of their nature. It's a sin nature. And they're subject to every kind of illness. There's pain. There's all kinds of suffering. Now in this world, it's still a magnificent place. okay? But now, now we've got real problems and threats around every corner. And a thousand mortal ills that flesh is heir to. And that is uh, from the book of Second Hamlet, of course, the Apostle Shakespeare. But you get the picture. I mean, it's illness and it's death. And it's that, that's the reality now with the fall is involved. The fall is a foundational Christian doctrine. We just can't do without it. We can't make sense of the world we live in without... By the way, everyone has to make sense of it. I mean, if you, didn't, if you don't believe in that doctrine, then you have to try to account for why is the world this way. You've got to try to figure out for yourself how to how to put that in a place how to make sense of that and and the the fall is a, is a pretty easy doctrine in many ways to to just explain on its face simply because of the fact that people see its effects the fall has effects does it not lots and lots of effects you know with an e it has effects and we see it. People see it. Non-believers see it. People who have never read these things in the Bible, they'd say, oh, yeah, 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 that makes sense. Because I live in the world, too. And I see the effects, too. And here's a quote from Whitfield that I'll show you. Nice move there. Look at look at Yako back there, right on it, right on the spot, alert, awake, doing it right. His, I think that's who's back there. I'm not kidding. even see him. In between napping. What? No? I'm sorry. Maybe there'll be more credit. What happened to him? He, he's wearing his Inigo Montoya shirt today, which is a lie. He says his name is Inigo Montoya. I told him 
that's fine, but uh, I never laid a hand on your father, just for the record. He annoys me from time to time, but I've never touched him. However, I am prepared to die. And that is uh, pertinent to our message today. Look at Whitfield, our man. You know, Whitfield, the great, the great um, preacher of the, the Great Awakening, uh, the great Methodist preacher, of course, running all over America. One biographer called him America's first uh, celebrity. Everywhere he went, everybody knew him. Friend of, uh, uh, friend of Benjamin Franklin. It's a good quote from him. He says, The fall of man is written... In two legible characters. It's too legible. It's too easy to read. Not to be understood. Too legible. Not to, you got to see it. And those who deny it, he says, by their denying, prove it. Meaning that to deny the real state of things. I mean, to not notice that this is how the world is. The, to, to pretend you don't see the sin nature of people. What people are like, including yourself. I mean, frankly, that'd just be foolish, would it not? That's just dumb. And that that foolishness would show the effects of this nature on your perspective. Like your mind is not operating perfectly, and our minds don't operate. The effects of the fall cover everything, and so it even affects how, your ability to to really reason well, like like we ought to, as we as if we were perfect. We're not perfect reasoners. We're not perfect in any capacity. People who deny it then, I'll tell you, people who deny the fall really should never be in charge of anything. It's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to, uh, I mean, you, you have to understand what we're like and, and account for it so that you can, you know, put certain stops, put the brakes in, put guardrails on where needed because we just can't trust us. We just can't. This is what we're like. And all the rest of our beliefs about everything else will be affected. R.A. Torrey said, tell me your doctrine of the fall, and I will tell you the state of your theology. You get it wrong, you can get everything else wrong, probably. And sometimes uh, with disastrous consequences. So here we are in this state, and what what can we do? What's to be done? I mean, how, how can these kind of things be overcome? Can we, can we mitigate the effects, some of the effects of the fall? Can we? Can we mitigate some of those? Well, we have. We have. The whole history of human beings all around the world is a history of people doing what they can in all kinds of ways to try to curb this thing, to, to try to mitigate these effects. So, for example, you know, the sin nature of people. We've attempted all, all across all cultures since the beginning. We've made every attempt we can to mitigate the moral effects of the fall with all kinds of moral instruction and principles and teachings and writings, moral programs, religious instructions of various kinds, all sorts of efforts to combat our worst instincts. And that's good. It's, it's only natural that we would do that. It's only natural that people would try to do that because we're still made in the image of God. So wherever people live, or whatever time period, whatever culture, they look at people and they say, you know, we're kind of messed up. We should be better. And if things would go better, if we were better, maybe we can help that. So they try. They try. They mitigate the effects somewhat. Mixed success rates, yeah? 
What about the effects of uh, sickness and illness and all those things? We, can we and have we mitigated some of those? That's the whole history of medicine, the attempt to mitigate those things. To do a little better, we, people work hard to try to make that happen. And they, they, you know, they only live so long, and then they pass their, pass their knowledge on. The next group, they do a little better. And in fact, there, there, are, there are some things that are mitigated. You and I could give hearty thanks for that work that's been done, because it's mitigated a lot of stuff you'd be suffering with if some people hadn't done that, hadn't done all that. I mean, painkillers, all that sort of stuff that people have come up with. Some of the surgeries a lot of us have had, you know, we should be thankful that it has mitigated the effects. And and of course, all the broken things in people's relationships and all the sort of horror of the heartache and and the things that the, the you know like uh, depression and I mean, we try, we try, we try. We counsel people. We do a long history of attempting to fight as we can, the best people can, against all the effects of the fall. Nothing we can do can eradicate the can eradicate this condition though entirely, right? It's mixed success rate. The efforts are good. Applaud the efforts, but they can't change our basic nature. And then there's one more thing. And that is death itself. The big, ugly, scariest of all effects of the fall is, as the old spirituals, the old spiritual went, you got to die. Just as well, get ready. You got to die. Well, that's some good theology in that old song. Because... As every human being has always known, I mean, this is real, this lurks. No program, no seminar, no technique, no product, no drug we've invented can help us out to cure that. Have we mitigated that to some extent? If, if we count that lifespans are a little longer, then I guess we've mitigated it a little. We lengthen those lifespans. Overall, you know, I read, I like to read biographies, read about people in the past. I do a lot of that. And I can't help but notice when I read about people in past times, I can't help but notice, you know, very, very often the ages at which they die. And then the older I get, I think, man, that's kind of close to me. <laughs> I mean, a lot of these people I read about, they're dying in their 50s. A, a, uh, that, that, inglorious decade that I'm knocking on the door of. Huh? I'm knock, knock, knocking on 50's door right now. And of course, some of you got, now some of you in here are saying to yourself, yeah, I remember when I broke through that threshold all those years ago. And then the youngsters are going, well, yeah, I mean, 50, once you're past that, might as well. You're practically on your deathbed anyway. Do like I mean do people even live very far past that anyway? Yeah, I'm I'm about to break on through to the other side of 50. The old half a hundred mark. And and uh you know, so you can say, okay, well, you know, on average lifespans of LinkedIn. Oh good, we've cured it. Well, I mean, we've we have anywhere nowhere close to curing any I mean that's a joke, right? Death, hey, we we stave it off, we push it back. But I mean, the grand scheme of things, what's a couple of decades? You know, 
No, we haven't cured it at all. We're like, uh, we're like medics in wartime, really. You know, running around the world like a big battlefield, just trying to help the wounded. Uh, but, but, but it's a war that we, deep down, we sort of know that on our own, we just can't win. We run around like medics trying to help the wounded, trying to evacuate, but we can't win this war. Not, not on our own, we can't. And so it is. This, then, the human condition, sin and dysfunction, illness and death. So far, this is an encouraging message, isn't it? Feel good about coming today? They say life comes at you fast, you know, and, but, and it does. It, can, it comes from all directions. You know, and you don't sort of get to know ahead of time always, which sometimes without warnings, like that old, uh, like that old uh, football drill I heard about years ago at some of the high schools. I think they'd call it something like bull in the pin. Put a guy in the middle, make a circle around him with the guys. And, you know, either, either the guys would have a number that the guy in the middle didn't know about, or maybe something like that. And, you know, so the coach just calls out a number real quick. And whoever that guy is, he just rushes that guy in the middle full speed. The guy in the middle has to has to be ready, has to pivot, turn, plan himself, be, brace himself, be ready to take that guy on, has to keep his head on a swivel, as they say. You know, he doesn't know where it's coming from. And, of course, if he, if he gets really ugly, you might call two numbers at, at once. That's not really fair. But that's life. Now, you don't know where it's coming from. And, and you won't have much notice, necessarily. And he'll come at you fast. You're going to have to turn, plant your feet. You're going to have to brace yourself and be ready to, to absorb that blow or you're just going to get clopped completely. Still encouraging, right? Listen, all this is just, this is just the reality of sort of, this, this is the setup not to mean that, I'm just saying we've sung about the good stuff. We're here, we're here about the good news. But you know, we, don't, we don't have to come into church and play pretend. Oh, life's fun, it's wonderful, everything's great. We're Christians after all. No problems at all. Everything perfect health. Luckily I don't sin anymore. Got that behind me. All my everybody loves me. I'm not on the outs, so don't have anything, no one has anything against me, and I, I I have no guilt to be nothing I've done, no problem. I'm in absolute perfect tip top health, nothing but positive thoughts all week long. It's just great. And we could play that game if we wanted to. Uh, but that ain't a church I want to be any part of. Bunch of fakes. Bunch of big old phonies. You know, Jesus said, it's like a hospital, you know. I didn't come here. If you approach me and to, to brag about how great your life's going, you don't need me. I tip my cap going your way. I got, pe- I, got, I got real people, honest people. They need me. That's who I'm here for. And the fact is, the people who say they don't need him, it's not because they don't need him. It's because they're not honest. Because they're lying to themselves. Because that's part of the falling condition as well. And the enemy whispers those lies to us. This is just an honest assessment, okay? It's just an unflinching context of things. And that brings us back to Genesis 3. That that prophecy we read there, Genesis 3, that the serpent's going to strike. I mean, it doesn't pretend the serpent's not real. And he's not venomous. He's not a bad dude. I mean, the serpent says he's real crafty too. It'd be nice if he was just a big dummy. But he's not. Real smart. And he outfoxes us around a lot of turns. Gets the better of us. Look around the world. I mean, he's having his way with people. (laughs) He is just beating people up left and right. So so the serpents, the realism of the serpent. Yeah, he strikes all right. Those those are real teeth. Those are real fangs he's got. And And he hits the heel hard. But you see, it's the heel. 
And the one who is being struck, he's delivering the better blow. He's coming down hard on his head. He strikes the head. I mean, who who would you rather be in the scenario? It's like the guy who's in a fight. He says, uh, you know, got face off, got black eyes and everything. He says, well, you should see the other guy's fist, man. I wore that fist out. Right? I mean, the enemy strikes. But you get the image here? It's his head. One Old Testament scholar said this. He said, the first vocational description of the seed of the Messiah is that he's a head crusher. He's a skull crusher. Which, by the way, if you're looking for a a great name for your Christian metal band, Skull Crusher. He says, granted, this is not the typical image of Jesus that we have. On On the wall of your Sunday school classroom, for instance, there's likely a picture of what may be an oddly Caucasian-looking Jesus with very long, well-shampooed hair, neatly trimmed beard, uh, cuddling the baby lamb. Chances are, though, um, there is nowhere in the church a picture of a wild-eyed, sword-bearing, veteran Israelite warrior with a crushed skull beneath his feet. But you know, there could be. I mean, it would be biblical. See, if your only image of of Jesus that you have in your mind is a crucifix, see, a crucifix is 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 the cross with the crucified Messiah on it. If If the only image you have of Jesus is the suffering servant who is dying, that's true. That image is true. It's not false. But it's incomplete. It's just incomplete if that's all you've got. Christians would then become the religion of people who celebrate a great martyr who once came and taught true, wonderful things that we ought to live by and showed us a great example, all of which would be true, and then was betrayed, was hated by people who were sinners, terrible people, who had power, felt threatened by him, did not like the fact that the crowds were following him, rigged the system, you know, a sham trial. And and that would be the story. Terrible, terrible ending, an unjust death. Let's remember him always. He he went to his death, and that would be the end. And of course, most of the things I, everything I just said now leading up to that, I mean those are those are true things. That's that's in the text. But I mean that wouldn't that would really not finish out the story, would it? He is the suffering servant. Oh yeah, yeah. We're not denying that. The willing sacrifice, the lamb led to slaughter that Scripture foretells that the Gospels describe. It's just that that's not the end. That'd be like watching one of those uh, one of those sports movies and just pick whichever one you want of the like 6,000 of them. It's sort of the same time. That'd be like watching it, but then you know turning it off at the midpoint after they lose because they got to lose at some. I mean, you got to lose at some point to sort of give you the. You know what I mean? How the arc of the story goes. They got to lose. It's got to look hopeless. It's got to look like there's no way they can ever win. Oh no! Before you get to the good part, and in the end, you know they're going to win. But you wouldn't. Turn it off then and be like, oh, what a great bunch of guys they were. Too bad, too bad, just never could be good enough. You didn't watch the end. I mean, that's the whole point of it. Get you to that end point. And through the centuries, you know, the church, throughout all the years, the church has venerated the suffering servant and remembered the suffering servant. Every time they come to the communion table, 
they picture it and they talk about he who gave his body and it was and it was beaten, battered, and broken, and he who let them shed all, uh, let them spill his blood and he gave it freely and and shed it freely. So that's remembered all the time. And of course, in many traditions, they they put crucifixes up, and it's always the depiction there. So that's always been there, but it would be incomplete if we said that's the church's picture. Now the church has another, a bigger, fuller picture, because throughout all of church history, there's also been the victorious conqueror, the guy in Revelation, you know, who you don't want to meet up with if you're not one of his, because he didn't ride the little donkey, right? Like the like 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 we did Palm Sunday. He's not side saddled in a little colt. He's on the big steed, trample you right under his feet. If you're his enemies, and fire is going to be flying out of his eyes, and he's got a sword in his hand. There's also that one in Latin, Christus Victor, which I think used to be the motto of at least one of the great universities that was founded. Victorious Christ, the conquering hero. It's in poems, it's in hymns, it's in sermons, paintings all throughout the years. You guys know uh, the, the old battle hymn of the Republic, right? The old Civil War familiar type hymn, right? But eyes have seen the glory Right? You guys know. I think it's just still in our hymn book. Every once in a while somebody requests it, you know? Well, you know the third... Yeah, you you among them. You ever read the third stanza? Well, let me show it to you. The third stanza says this. I have read a fiery gospel writ in burnished rows of steel. I like it already. As ye deal with my contemners, not a typo, got to go look that one up. It means something like scoffers. That's for you people going to be playing at Wordle later, just if it comes up, you know. As ye deal with my contemners, so with you my grace shall deal. Here's the good part. Let the hero born of woman crush the serpent with his heel, since God is marching on. You see that in other hymns, in in other writings, in other places. You know, in a fallen world, sometimes, sometimes you need a battle hymn. Because whether you like it or not, you're in a fight. Jesus was a man of peace. Yes, Jesus was a man of peace, comma, and a man of war. He was at peace among all people and sought to bring peace to people and wishes to see peace among people. But did he make peace with Satan? Did he broker peace with evil, with hell itself? Did he make peace with death? Thank God he didn't. He didn't go to a negotiating table with Satan and and do a, a ransom deal for, you know, just a couple of people or I mean he didn't just he he didn't make peace. He didn't negotiate. He didn't do a treaty. He won. He made war. And he won. And he won the victory. So he's a man of peace, yes, and a man of war. It just depends on who, where the war is. So what about you? Here's an application now for you. Resurrection Day application. You and I, we're people of peace. Are we not people of peace? You're supposed to be at peace. You have established peace with God through Christ. He gives you peace with God and he says you have peace and make peace with each other. The apostle said, in as much as it is possible for you, in as much as it is within your power, 
Be at peace with all people. That's a command. So we live, we are, we are bringers of peace and we live with peace among all people. But friends, there's a war going on. There is a war going on. What kind of war is it though? See, in a fallen world, I mean, I hate to break it to you if you weren't aware, in a fallen world, Christian, you got a fight coming. Right? Like Ike Clinton told Wyatt Earp, you got a fight coming. Coming today. He's coming every minute. It's coming every day. Every day you wake up, it's coming all the time. You may say, oh, no, love me. I'm just talking. Well, then you're just a dupe. You're losing the battle. If you think you're not in that fight, you're losing it. Sort of a newsflash. Now, there's, there's, there's a battle. But it's not against people. Paul says, our battle is not against human beings around us, flesh and blood people. It's against unseen things, more subtle things, more crafty things. Things that, you know, unseen forces and ideas and temptations and thoughts that invade our mind and tell us the things that aren't true and make us want to have attitudes we shouldn't have and play on our emotions and cause kinds of errors in our thinking and hatreds toward people and selfishness that we would have. And, you know, we can just go on and on with that. All of it, every bit of it, all of it, that's what we're fighting against. It's that, that's the enemy. We're at peace with all people. God has established it. Christ bought that peace among us, peace with God and peace with each other. But even though that war is won against the enemy, you, you still have to fight that war in the here and now. That's the battle of your life. That's your battle hymn. And on your own, you can't win it. On your own, sin's going to beat you. You ain't going to beat it. And of course, the reaper will claim you. I mean, how can I win if I'm, if I'm still... How can I really win? I mean, I'm going to die someday. Jesus told Martha, and she came to him and she said, a lot of good you did. I'm putting, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing here. Some good you did. Where was all that power? My brother died. I mean, he's gone. He's long since dead. He, he's rotting in a grave. So thanks for nothing. I mean, you know, maybe your attitude wasn't quite that way. I don't know. But you see, she didn't quite get it. She thought, well, it's over. We lost. We lost. He's gone. And Jesus said to her, no, no, no. You don't get it? I am the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me, though he were dead. Yeah, it looks like he's gone, doesn't it? Yeah, he's over there in that tomb. Isn't that a shame? It looks, it looks like he lost. Did he lose? I'm the resurrection and the life. You believe in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So, the old preachers used to say, you know, you can die twice. You can, you, you can just live once, die twice, or you can just die once, live twice. Life, death, and then life again.